Our sermon text for today is out of the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 3. Isaiah 9, 3. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. We're continuing today our series of Advent. The word Advent means coming or arrival. This is a season that Christians have observed for over a millennium. And all of you, in a sense, have participated in Advent before. If you've been to a Christmas Eve service, or if you've been to any of our services this year thus far, um, this is part of what we call the Advent calendar during Advent. We teach our hearts to do something we don't do very well, which is waiting. Advent is a season of waiting. And as we remember the first coming of Christ, we remember his coming again. Each week we'll remember a word that is symbolized by the candles on my left, your right. We've observed hope, peace. Today we observe joy, and yet there is tension on the stage because the candle of love is not yet lit. This reminds us of a people who waited for the coming of Messiah, Messiah that will bring about hope, peace, love, and joy. The center candle represents Christ, His coming, second coming we Await. So we learn today, we teach our hearts to wait. But we also remember that we don't just wait, we relish in promises that have already been fulfilled. Today we turn to the word joy. I love watching fear jerker videos online and find myself lost in them sometimes. The great emotion that overwhelms someone when for the first time they're able to hear the voice of a loved one or see colors clearly, the long-awaited embrace of the soldier that comes back home from deployment, the thankfulness when the homeless man receives a makeover and beauty suddenly emerges or is revealed from ashes. Have you noticed that they always choose the homeless man with great hair? They never give the bald, the bald homeless person a makeover. I wonder why. It's encouraging to see this movement from destitution to dignity, isn't it? It's a constant theme in the Bible. It's encouraging to see other people break through, break free from that which was enslaving them. It's encouraging to see people move from darkness to light. Stories like this resonate with us, don't they? But why? Because the story of moving from darkness to light is the story of the gospel. It's the story of Christmas, and it is the story of the book of the prophet Isaiah. 
In this Advent series, we've been diving into single verses in the Bible, but we're considering the context that makes them so relevant. We're really looking at these verses and exploring the theology in and around them. The book of Isaiah is the first of the major writing prophets in the Bible. It is also the largest prophetic book in the Bible. And perhaps we could even say it's the most significant of the prophets. Isaiah is often referred to as the fifth gospel. So clear is its message about Christ. Isaiah begins with a message of pending judgment to Israel. But the message of judgment is not void of hope. The Lord calls Israel to repentance. And if they repent, their sins would be as white as snow. And this contrast, contrasting theme runs through the book, Salvation and Judgment, Light and Darkness, The Corruption of Zion, and the glory of the mount of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming, Isaiah says. And it will be a day of hope and a day of fear. The immediate judgment that is promised in the book of the prophet Isaiah is the judgment that Israel would receive from the Assyrians. The Assyrians would invade, lead away the ten northern tribes, into exile. In the beginning of chapter 8, we're told that the, the Assyrian invasion would happen and that it would happen soon. And at the end of chapter 8, we read this. In, in your outlines, I have the wrong verse, the right verses on the screen. At the end of chapter 8, we read this. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be, thus, will be thrust into thick darkness. This is God speaking to Israel. But then listen to the immediate shift in the beginning of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the later, latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And this is the heart of the prophecy of Isaiah, which is the heart of the gospel, which is the heart of the Bible, that God judges sin harshly, severely, but his last word for his people is always mercy. Listen to Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping, 
right? What Israel was to experience by the invading Assyrians, whipping may tarry for the night, darkness. But joy comes in the morning. So, if you're walking through darkness in your life right now, if, if you're looking at your life and you say it's all gloom, there's little to no hope, this message is for you. You can be those who walked in darkness but have seen a great light. God loves to transfer those from the those who trust in him from darkness to light. God loves to move from judgment to joy. So now as we arrive as we arrive at our verse for today, we'll consider two ways in which God brings about joy for those who are in darkness. First, growth, and second, prosperity. So let's consider growth first. Isaiah 9 is the beginning of the explanation of, I'm sorry, Isaiah 9.3 is the beginning of the explanation of Isaiah 9.2. We just read this, right? We read this today actually a few times in our service. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Okay, what does that mean? In other words, the people who would be under the judgment of God have received the mercy of God. That's what that means. And how would Israel experience the mercy of God, the light of God? The answer is God would multiply the nation. That's what the text says. Israel had just a few faithful remnants, right? This nation that was called to be a nation of priests was found largely unfaithful. The prophets would preach and they would get very little response. Some trusted, but many, most, didn't. But God would not just leave the nation to be a remnant. God would instead multiply the nation. But what does it mean to multiply the nation? We've heard this word before, haven't we? Multiply. That's a word that appears often in the Bible. Where does this idea of multiplying begin in the Bible? I'm going to get a little technical here, okay? So some of you are going to hear some terms for the first time. That's good. Take those terms and store them. You hear them again, and when you hear them again, you understand more. Some of you hear some of the terms that I'm about to use and say, I, I know what that means. But I think if you, if you hang in there with me um, and you understand what I'm about to say, you will become a better interpreter of the Bible. Very often, theological systems suggests that we should begin our understanding of God's purpose of salvation, God's purpose for humanity, with the promises made to Abraham. But I would suggest that as great and important as the promises made to Abraham are, that's the wrong place to start. And if we start there, we'll come to, we will be confused in our conclusions. Abraham does not appear in the Bible until 
chapters 12 of Genesis. So what about Genesis 1 through 11? What do we do with those chapters? I would say, if we want to understand how the Bible fits together, we have to go back to the beginning. And if we don't start there, we'll not end at the right place. God's purpose for salvation begins, for, for salvation of humanity, begins with Adam. Genesis 1. In theology, there are two uh, major systems of biblical interpretation. They're very prevalent. They're called covenantalism and dispensationalism. Both suggest that God's purpose of salvation are centered in, one, in, some, in some ways in Abraham, in the person of Abraham. And thus, they underemphasize the role that Adam plays. Okay? So I'm actually arguing against both systems. I'm arguing for a midway. Covenantalism emphasizes that God's purpose in redeeming the that God's purpose is the redemption of the spiritual seed of Abraham, the church. And although this is true and beautiful, it fails to point us back to the beginning. What about Adam? What about the garden? Those, this leads to strange theological conclusions, like there is no distinction between Israel and the church. The church is Israel, and Israel is the church. The covenantal sign of baptism is to be administered to the children since it is a continuation of circumcision. The church is a mixed community of believers and unbelievers, and I would say that's the wrong way to see the church. On the other hand of the spectrum, there is dispensationalism. And dispensationalism emphasizes God's purpose in redeeming the physical seed of Abraham, Israel. And although this too is true and beautiful, it also fails to point us all the way back to Adam. What about Adam? What about the garden? Those, it also leads to strange theological conclusions, like God has two people. There are two ways of salvation, obedience for the Jews and faith for the Gentiles. But what about Adam? It begins with Adam, doesn't it? And I, and I guarantee you, if you go back to Adam, you will not come to strange conclusions. Think of it this way. Today, my beautiful bride and I are celebrating, and she decides to walk out exactly when I'm about to do this. She's taking, care of, she's taking care of the children. My, my bride and I are celebrating 18 years of marriage. The Lord has been good to us. If I could do this a thousand times over, I would marry the same, girls, the same girl a thousand times over and over again. Now, imagine if you ask me, Pastor Lucas, tell me about your family. And I start with four years ago, Boaz was born. Or I start with a year and a half ago, Elise was born. You would say there is something missing. The foundation is missing. 18 years ago, Indy and I stood before each other, before the church and before God, and we made a covenant together. And that's where it begins. Okay? Friends, this is how the Bible begins. God making a covenant with men. 
entering a relationship based on promises. God making a covenant with Adam, and if you don't start there, if you skip to Abraham, you will not understand the Bible correctly. And it is to Adam that the order to be fruitful and multiply is first given. Genesis 1.28, God's purpose for humanity. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So let's start there. God's purpose for humanity is that through Adam, who was created in the image of God, image bearers would multiply and fill the earth. That's God's goal for humanity. It's still the same goal today. But Adam failed. Adam failed to reflect the image of God, didn't he? He sinned. So the holiness of God that was to be reflected in Adam was no, lo no longer reflected. Adam did not lose the image of God, but the image of God was marred. So God expelled Adam from the garden. And God wiped out the seed of Adam from the, from the, from the face of the earth, save one man and his family, Noah. After the great flood, God speaks to Noah and says to him, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Sounds familiar? Of course it does. Noah is a new Adam. And God's original purpose for humanity is still there. Noah was called to succeed. And yet Noah failed, didn't he? In the same way, Noah takes the fruit of the vine and sins against God. So God called Abraham. Now we arrive at Abraham. But there's something different about Abraham. Both Adam and Noah were told to be fruitful and multiply, but listen to what God tells Abraham. Genesis 17, 15 through 16. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, shall, you shall not call her name Sarai, but, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. God's desire to fill the earth with those who image him was not accomplished by Adam. It was not accomplished by Noah. So God steps in and says, I will accomplish this. Abraham, you are not able to produce an offspring and neither is your wife, but I will give you a son. Abraham is a new and improved Adam. An Adam, an Adam of faith. So God, miraculously, against all odds, through the barren womb, gives Abraham a seed. He gives him Isaac, and through Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and through the twelve sons of Jacob, Israel multiplied. Israel is the new Adam now. Even in slavery, even in light of severe persecution, Israel multiplied. And even when it seems that their enemies would prevail against them, God would give them growth. 
but Israel also grew in faithlessness. The faith that characterized their father Abraham was not born in their hearts. They were part of the people of the Lord, but they did not love the Lord. A people that once was prosperous find themselves desolate in ruin at the mercy of their enemies. So in the beginning of Isaiah, the prophet says to Israel, Isaiah 1.9, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is dark. This is reason to despair. This is reason to mourn. No civilization survives with the glory of the past. And if it wasn't for the Lord, Israel would not be any different than their cursed, depraved cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, this is how it is with us as well. Apart from the Lord, we're not better than our neighbors. If the Lord had not left us a remnant of faith, we would not believe. We, we can't look at ourselves with any pride at all because were it not for the Lord, we would be just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, haters of God deserving of His judgment. If you've lived a life that is moral, upright, decent, it has not been you. It has been the Lord in you. And listen to how Paul describes our experience apart from the Spirit. Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Do you, do you believe that? you believe that? That is in my flesh apart from the Spirit. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Just as Adam failed, we too have failed. This is our nature. We are the people who once walked in darkness. But we have seen the light. John 1, 4-5, In Him, in Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you and I, who once walked in darkness, now see the light. This means when Isaiah said that God would multiply the nation, he was talking about Gentile believers, you and I. We were in darkness with no hope. You and I, us, who were outside of the covenant but would come to know Christ. We would be added to the people of God. Immediately after Isaiah 53, the famous suffering servant, servant passage where it is prophesied that the Messiah would die for his people, Isaiah starts emphasizing the new covenant about this new covenant in Christ and what it would bring about. Isaiah 54, 1 through, 3, 1 through 3, listen to this. Sing, O barren one, right, without hope. 
who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry out, cry out loud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate, those without hope, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now listen to this. Enlarge the place of your tents. Why? And let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations. Ah, that's the promise that is given to Isaiah, that the nation will be multiplied by bringing other nations in. Friends, that's us. This is the fulfillment of God's purpose for humanity. God wanted through Adam, that's why we have to go all the way back to Adam, because all the nations are found in Adam. God wanted through Adam to fill this earth with those who reflected his image, but in Adam all died. This is why every attempt to restart Adam's mission failed. Noah, Abraham, Israel, because we needed a better Adam. An Adam that would not cause his people to suffer, but instead would suffer for his people. Paul then draws a comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. Paul then draws a comparison between Adam and Christ and how Christ was able to fulfill that which Adam failed. Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the trespasses. For if many died through one man's trespasses, Adam, right? Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And this is why Jesus said in John 10, 16, and I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is the promise of multiplication. This is the promise we see in Isaiah. Jews and Gentiles being made one flock, one new man in Christ Jesus. Jesus came, us to, give, Jesus came to give us joy, and the joy we lost when Adam sinned is restored when Jesus proceeds. Now let's consider my second point, prosperity. Now I hope you're still with me. I know I've taken you through a lot of theological depth, but it's good to think. So I'm going to try to spend my last few minutes in this message applying some of these things that we just thought about. Okay, So the verse goes on to say, they, nations, right, those who were brought in, those who were multiplied, they rejoice before you. God's goal is to bring the nations to himself so that the nations can be or, or can with joy worship him. That's, that's the goal, right? We reflect his image and that brings glory to God. We see this picture at the end in Revelation 7, right? The nations worshiping God before the throne, God and the Lamb, so we know here 
that we are to rejoice before the Lord. So joy has a location. A spiritual location, true joy happens in the presence of God. Theologian R.C. Sproul would often emphasize the fact that we live quorum Deo, the Latin phrase meaning in the presence of God. R.C. once said, to live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and whatever, and, and whatever we're doing and wherever we're doing it, we're acting under the gaze of God. So this means, means we must live each moment for His glory. But do we? Do we really rejoice before God? Do we really live with plenty of joy? I'm afraid I often see Christians very burdened by society in America. I'm afraid at times we believe the wickedness that surrounds us is more present than the God who saves us. So we become critical. We become bitter. We become fearful and these things are the enemy of joy. You know, one of the saddest things we see today in our world is the image of people together physically, but apart in every other way. Families sitting together, but their attention not given to each other, but to their phone. This is a pandemic. And it is not exclusive to the young. And when we live our lives void of joy in the presence of God, we're doing the same. We're ignoring the fact that we live quorum deo. We ignore the fact that we live before the presence of God. Friends, we must fight to remind ourselves that God is omnipresent. Not only complaints, not only sin, not only acts, not one thought takes place in our minds that God is not completely aware of. Living in the presence of God is a great thing. It's a great blessing. And if we remember that constantly, we'll be exuberant in joy. And if God's present, God is present with us, let us be present with Him. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You know, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, can I ask you some questions today about having joy before the Lord? When you drive, do you drive as though you are in the presence of the Lord? Showing preference and honor to those who are around you? When you use social media, do you use in a way that your joy is increased? Do you browse the web knowing that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere? When you speak to your spouse, when you speak to your children, young people, when you speak to your parents, do you speak as 
to them as though God is always present with you? Do you work as though God is your boss? Do you do your house chores for the glory of God? Do you work unto Him? Friend, let me help you here. If your life is void of joy, it is probably because you're living your life as though God is not near. We have to fight against living our lives claiming to be Christians, but actually living as practical atheists. We say we believe God, but we don't live a life that reflects that. Paul associates joy with the presence of God. Philippians 4, 4 through 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. By the way, this is a commandment, right? That must be obeyed, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Sometimes I'm tempted to think that maturing in life means decreasing in joy. Because joy is so present in the life of the young that I'm tempted to think age must equal less joy. That's a lie. That is not true. As we age and we come nearer and nearer to the presence of God, we must increase in joy. So we must obey this commandment. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Then listen to this. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Now, we don't know if Paul means here the Lord is near, he's with us, or his arrival, his second coming, is close. Could be one or the other, could be both, probably both. Whichever it is, nearness to God produces joy. But if we don't believe God is near, rejoicing will be difficult. If we don't believe God is near, we certainly will not pray. If we don't believe God is near, we won't feel the motivation to know Him through His Word. If we don't believe God is near, we won't fight sin. And friends, when our lives are characterized by prayerlessness and sin, I assure you that we will not experience joy. So if you're struggling with joy in your life, can I encourage you to pray a simple prayer? It comes from a song from my high school years. Lord, let me know you are near. Pray that. Children, if you, are, if you sometimes feel bored and you don't know what to do with your mind, with your hands, with your time, can I encourage you to pray a very simple prayer? Just pray, Lord, let me be happy that you are close to me. Pray that. And watch God teach you how to be happy in all circumstances over time. Empty nesters, senior adults, widows. If you're struggling because your life once was filled with people, but now you feel alone, pray to God. Help me know you are near Singles, the Lord is always with you. You're never alone. Ask Him, Lord, help me know you are near. Finally, our verse ends with two statements. These are similes. This is a figure of speech. 
comparison, this is as bad. So the prophet says, they rejoice before you as with joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. These are two ends of the spectrum. To rejoice at harvest is to rejoice with the prosperity of peace. Harvest is collected when a nation doesn't have to worry about protecting itself from enemies, right? You know that we have had a crisis with grain in the world that is affecting especially the developing countries. Why is that? Because the, mo the two countries that provide the world with most grains are Russia and Ukraine. Harvest is interrupted by war. But a time of peace, we rejoice in the harvest. But Israel will also rejoice at times of war, right? When they, devile, when they divide the spoils. This is prosperity at times of war. This is victory. You only divide the spoil if you have victory. The book of Isaiah is filled with instability. In book, the chapter 6, we hear that King Isaiah died. The death of the king was often an unsettling time for the nation. And now Israel has to worry about the mighty Assyrians. God's purpose for the, for the Assyrians was to oppress Israel so much so that in chapter 8, God instructed the prophet Isaiah to name his son Ma'er Shalal Hashbash. That's a good name if you're looking for one which means quick to plunder and swift to spoil. It was a reminder that a nation more powerful than them would conquer them. But those who walked in darkness would see a great light. The people who was once plundered would enjoy the spoils of victory. This passage is saying that the people of God will find joy both in times of peace and in times of war. At all times, God prospers His people regardless of the circumstances that surround them. But Isaiah's son was not the only son that would be named in this section of the book. He was not only the son that reminded the people that their goods would be plundered and their city would give spoil to a wicked nation. Isaiah 7, 4, there's another child who is named. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I'm sorry, Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So friends, the story of Christmas is remarkable not just because a baby is born, but because the baby is God. And in times of hardship and in times of prosperity, at all times, we can take heart knowing that a baby was born. And because that baby was born, God chose to dwell with us. God chose to be with you. So you can embrace the joy of Christmas. Will you, this Christmas, choose joy? Will you 
this Christmas. Give joy. Will you forsake bitterness? Will you forsake ungratefulness? Will you forsake selfishness? And find joy in Christ. Regardless of your life circumstances through Christ, remember this. God is always with you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the victory of Christ. Lord, thank you that we know that that baby was born 2,000 years ago, and because that baby was born, you are with us. Help us know, Lord, that you are near. Help us know that you are God who gives joy, the joy of multiplication, the joy of prosperity. And Lord, there is nothing greater than to know that we are a people who belong to you. Thank you, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.